You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. We are in uh, the 11th week of our series through the book of James. Uh, Next to last week, next week is going to be our last week. And I don't know about y'all, but I've absolutely loved this series through the book of James. It's been very timely for me, and uh, I have very much enjoyed it. If you remember last week, we kicked off chapter 5 and looked at verses 1 through 6, and uh, we really talked about how the church that James was writing to was being persecuted by what we called lost rich people. There was lost rich people that were persecuting the church, which was made up mostly of poor people. Well, today we're going to see James build on that idea that we unpacked last week, and we're going to really see him answer a couple of questions, one of which being, how can I do right when I've been done wrong? How do these people that James is writing to, how can they keep their cool when obviously there's so many things that are being done to them that are clearly and blatantly so wrong? Really, what James is going to answer this week, and and my prayer for you this weekend is by the time you leave, if you walked in discouraged, you're going to leave encouraged. And if you walked in and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, by the end of the day today, you have a living relationship with a living Savior named Jesus Christ. We're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. That's the whole reason we started this church. But he's really going to answer the question, how do we endure in our faith? If you're a Christian that's really trying to follow Jesus, you're really doing the best you can to fulfill his will in your life, and you're looking forward to heaven one day, how can you endure in your faith? We're going to see James give us two positive things that we're to do and we're to embrace, and then we're going to see him talk about two negative things that we're supposed to avoid. So four faith-inspired responses and actions that really amount to four mini-sermons for us today because while these are tied together, uh, they're different in a sense. So let's go to James chapter 5. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. Are you all ready? Say, I am. He kicks off this passage of Scripture with two words that really encapsulates the entirety of the Scripture and gives us a clue to what this is all about. He says, be patient. Everybody say, patient. One, two, three. Patient. Be patient, okay? Now, what you're going to see, 2 verse 12, is in every single verse except for one. You'll see this idea of patience really talked about. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters. Now, once again, let me point something out. If you were here last week, again, we go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible here at Rev Church so you can get the full context. Last week was the first time James wrote to a lost crowd. He was writing to lost, rich people. Now he's back to speaking to brothers and sisters. He's back to speaking to Christians, but building on the idea that we started to unpack last week. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. More on the Lord's coming at the end. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. The first thing that James tells us we're supposed to do really is what we're supposed to do outwardly as long as inwardly, but really it comes out outwardly, and that is be patient. Be patient. How many of y'all know when you ask God for patience, 
He's going to send you some things to try your patience. Y'all know what I'm saying? Amen? The word patience here in the Greek is the word makrothumos. It's really a two-part word, macro meaning long, thumos meaning temper or temperature. So it literally means, when it says patience, it means have a long temper. Your translation may say be long-suffering, and that's a good translation. What that means is it's a quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation or the ability to wait in tranquility. One person described it as this. It's when something unjust takes place, you have a long fuse and don't blow your top. When something unjust takes place, you have a long fuse and don't blow your top. I would put it like this. What it means is keeping your car in neutral when you want to grind your gears. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. You keep your car in neutral. This builds on the idea all throughout the Old Testament of patience. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 13, where we get this in-depth definition of what love is, it tells us love suffers long and is kind. What James is saying is really don't sweat the petty things that happen in your life. And I would add as well, don't pet the sweaty things, okay, y'all? There's a free tip this weekend. Look at your neighbor and say, don't pet the sweaty things, okay? Don't pet. Mike, I got a little bit of a ringing up here, bro. Don't pet the sweaty things. My wife heard that last night. She's like, what are the sweaty things? I'm like, I don't know, but don't pet them. You know what I mean? One pastor, I saw where he named his sermon, and this is really the idea that it kicks off with. He named his sermon for this passage, Hurry Up and Wait. What an oxymoron, right? It's like government efficiency. That doesn't make sense. They don't go together. Y'all know what I'm saying? Hurry up and wait. I got so mad at my kids this week, I sounded like Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. I was like, you shut your mouth when you're talking to me. That's an oxymoron, right? Like, you can't shut your mouth. Anybody ever been there? Parents in here? Y'all know what I'm saying? Hurry up and wait. Be patient. But the Lord's coming back. It's almost like James knew, and I'll just use myself as an example. When Josh Cardwell is told to be patient, probably what I want to do instead is throat punch somebody. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And by the way, when I do that, because I'm a pastor, that's called ministry. It's the laying on of hands when I punch somebody. So if you ever see me in the paper, just know, Pastor Josh is doing ministry again. But I lack patience like all of y'all do. I want everything to be fast. I want my computer to be fast. I want my phone to be fast. I want my food to be fast. Why do we call them waiters? We're the one waiting. Y'all know what I mean? Hurry up. Get it out to me. I'm at a red light. A couple weeks ago, I was at a red light. And listen, Crossville has a lot of transplants that aren't from the south. And we understand, y'all that are from the north and California and stuff, you honk your horns at each other at red lights. But if you do that here, you're going to get shot. Okay, y'all? Amen, local people, right? I was at a red light, and the light had just turned green, and somebody honked behind me. And if that was you, I forgive you, but next time I may shoot you, okay? You know what I'm saying? We don't do that down here. We're polite, okay? I'm just kidding, okay, y'all? If you can't take it, this ain't the church for you, okay? We make fun of everybody. Everybody. Amen, Rev Church? Don't email me, okay? 
Email our kids pastor, you know what I mean? Kids minister, email Jackie, okay? He's saying, though, be patient and wait till Christ comes. And he compares the coming of Christ and our patience to farming. What did he say? He said, farmers wait for the autumn and spring rains. Now, not all of us in here farm, but the audience that James was writing to, they all farmed. They had to do it in order to survive. So this was totally understood to his audience. They knew that in their geographical location, rain came at two points of the year. And in September, they would plant seed. And then early in October and November was the first rain that came and germinated the seed. And then late in March and in April, a second rain would come that would cause the seeds to take root and to grow. Well, one thing James is saying is be like the farmers because in between those two rains, after it germinated and from the time it takes root and grows, the farmers did everything they could to make sure the process went well. They tended to the ground. They got rid of the weeds. They got rid of the critters. They added fertilizer, but they could not accelerate the rain coming. They had to have patience. This echoes what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 11 when he said this. Listen to this. It ties directly to it. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, in other words, you're getting the weeds out. You're getting the critters out. You're putting the fertilizer down. You're making sure you're following God's command to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. He's like, the rain's coming, guys. Just hold on. I like what one commentator says about this. This is a little bit of old English, kind of Game of Thrones type language, but but listen to what he says about this opening verse in verse 7. He says this. This is what it means. Though we are not yet receiving the blessing of final salvation, planted in our lives by the seed of faith, our unbreakable new covenant promise of salvation guarantees that one day God will rain his blessings on us through the glorious appearing of his son. Be patient. Jesus is coming. Hang in there. Verse 8, it continues. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. He continues and he gives us the second thing we're supposed to do when he says this. You too, be patient. There's patience again. And stand firm. Everybody say, stand firm. One, two, three. Stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Secondly, what we're supposed to do, and this is an inward thing we're to do, is strengthen your hearts. Our translation that we read says stand firm. Your translation that you like to read may say be courageous, but this refers to an emotional fortitude that believers are to have, an inner disposition that we are to have that no matter what, we are going to follow Jesus. The word for stand firm is the Greek word sterizo, and it means this, to establish, to support, or to fix something firmly in place so it's immovable. A couple weeks ago, I was reading an article about sumo wrestlers, and it absolutely fascinated me. Um, I think on the short list of things I could do in this world, uh, if I wasn't a pastor, I may be able to be a sumo wrestler because I like to eat and I have the body for it. Amen, y'all. Thank you for your laughter. I appreciate that. That makes me build great confidence in how I look. But anyway... Not that sumo wrestlers look bad, but you know what I'm saying? But, but it was amazing. I was reading this article. Sumo wrestlers consume twenty to 30,000 calories a day. 
They're so respected and revered in Japan that they don't even drive themselves around. They have drivers for them because they completely focus on the sport of sumo. And really in Japan, it's considered a religious ceremony. But you know the idea behind sumo. Two guys get into a circle and they try to push each other out of the circle. So the whole sport is around leverage and standing firm and not letting your opponent push you out so you can win. Essentially, what James is saying is, in a spiritual sense, be a sumo wrestler, y'all. Don't let the enemy push you out of the circle so you can win the battles that you are facing. We see this idea of standing firm all throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, stand firm and let nothing move you. Don't get pushed outside of the circle. The Old Testament, Psalm 73, 26, listen to what it says. Where does... Where does this strength come from? It doesn't come from us. Listen to what it says. My flesh and my heart may fail. Hey, we get worn out. We get beat down. We fail physically. Father time is undefeated. We have have problems that we can have. You can get a diagnosis. You can have all these things go wrong. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Philippians 4.13, one of the most popular scriptures in the Bible. Guarantee you there's somebody sitting in this room right now that has Philippians 4.13 tattooed somewhere on their body. And it's a good one to get tattooed. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Y'all know that one. Who strengthens me? Him who strengthens me. Psalm 27.14, wait for the Lord. Mm, There's that idea of patience coupled with strengthening your heart. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. James says, don't give up. Don't tap out. Don't give in. Stay faithful to your Savior. Be patient and strengthen your heart. You can make it. Look at verse 9 as he gets into the two things we're not supposed to do. Verse 9 says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Here we are again, talking about our tongues, right? Talking about the things that we say all throughout the book of James. Talking about taming the tongue. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessing, as blessed, those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance. And have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The third thing he tells us not to do when we're being persecuted, when we have suffering, when things are falling apart in our lives, when we don't understand everything, is we don't complain. We don't complain. I heard one person describe complaining as athlete's foot in your brain. It feels good when you scratch it. I mean, we all have this proclivity towards gossip and negativity. We talked about it a few weeks ago, you know, threads on Facebook that are full of drama. We can't wait to read them, right? We may not comment, but we want to read them because we have this pull towards this negativity. But that's, that's what it is in your brain, complaining, negativity, all those things. When you scratch it and you speak it, it may feel good in the moment, but it just spreads. It spreads, and eventually it can eat you up. Complaining never makes anything better, is what James is pointing out. He uses the example of the Old Testament prophets. And if you haven't read the Old Testament, you need to know 
that the majority of the Old Testament prophets were rejected because of their message and because of who they represented, so really who they were. And some of them even faced strong violence against them. Just a short list of a few examples that you may know or not know. Elijah was threatened and ran for his life. He actually ended up in a cave where he was suicidal because he had so much persecution against him. Amos was kicked out of the temple in Bethel, and they basically disbarred him, so to speak, and he was told to never to come back. Micaiah had the courage to call out 400 false prophets, and what did he get for it? He got slapped in the face and put in prison. Zechariah was stoned to death for speaking on behalf of the Lord. Hananiah was put in prison just for correcting King Asa and trying to help him. Uriah ran for his life, and he was caught, and when they caught him, they killed him. The Old Testament prophets were ridiculed. They were told to be quiet. They had false accusations against them. They were kicked out of religious institutions. They were imprisoned, and they even had violence against them. He says, hey, man, don't think that you'll get out of it because they didn't get out of it. Then he gives us the ultimate example from the Old Testament, a whole book of the Bible. Everybody knows it. Even if you're not a church person in here, don't know a whole lot about the Bible. You've heard of Job before. Job, who is the greatest Old Testament example of patient endurance under excruciating suffering. Job that lost everything personally, everything financially, everything physically, but he refused to give up and give in. In Job's situation, what James is pointing out is his suffering was temporary. Eventually, He would be blessed, and those blessings on Job reflect the compassion and the mercy of God. How does this tie to us? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what it says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since that what is seen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We go through it in this life. There's going to be bad things that happen. There's going to be things that you don't understand. But what this verse speaks to is the fact that if you know Christ, you go to heaven one day. And heaven is a reflection of the compassion and the mercy of God in our lives, just like Job's blessings were that reflection. See, it's part of all of our arrogant, sinful nature to assume that nobody's been through what I've been through. It's very easy for us to get into a mindset of nobody's ever had it as bad as I've had it, and no one gets me, and no one understands me. What James is saying is, listen, unless you've had it worse than Job, you can make it through. Because if you're suffering in your life and have tribulation and troubles and trials, you're not blazing a new trail. 
you're walking a well-worn path. Lots of Christians have come before you and suffered, and they've made it through. If they make it, you can make it. If the prophets could hold tight to God in the face of everything they faced, you can hold tight to whatever you can hold tight to God in the face of whatever you're facing. If Job could make it through to the end, you could make it through to the end. Lots of believers have come before us and they were faithful. If they kept the faith, you can keep the faith. Make sense, Rev Church? Say amen. Anybody ever seen the movie? Yeah, that's right. Amen. Anybody ever seen the movie Lone Survivor? Three people are excited about that in here. Come on, y'all. Like, come on. That's good preaching. It's better than you're letting on, you know? So it's not me. Has anybody ever seen the movie Lone Survivor about Marcus Luttrell? Well, on the deadliest day in SEAL's history, broke both his legs, had the Taliban on his tail. Uh, they were getting ready to kill him, and somehow he survived. He crawled multiple miles, made it to a village, and survived. In his book that he wrote, this is what he said and how he summarized everything that he'd been through. No matter how much it hurts, how dark it gets, or how hard you fall, you are never out of the fight. This is what James is saying to the Christians. You can endure this. You can have patience. You can make it through. Go to the next verse, verse 12. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. The last thing he tells us not to do, the fourth thing that is a command for us, but it's the last thing, and this is something not to do. And listen to the language when it says it first, above all. So really perk your ears up right now, okay? If you've listened to the first three points, really listen to this point. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Don't swear. James says, don't swear. Now, this is bigger than just the use of profanity. This refers to our tendency to make rash decisions and promises under duress. Just as a reminder, the early church is being persecuted. They're being killed for their faith. So some of them were probably making pretty rash decisions. When it says don't swear, the Greek word there is omnio. And it means to take an oath, or a better definition is to grasp onto something with our words. How this applies to us and how we get the application out of this is it means calling God into the circumstance and presenting Him to give validity to your commitments. So when we say things like, I swear to God I'll never do that again, or as God is my witness, I will do this, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. Jesus even spoke to this. This echoes exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Why were these Christians taking oaths? Why did they get this, this warning and this command? Well, again, they're being persecuted by rich lost people. They're caught between Jewish and Gentile persecutors. And so it would be easy for them to deny Christ and make an oath to something outside the church. And so what James is saying is, don't do that. 
No matter how much gain you get by making an oath to anything other than Jesus, don't do it. Because remember, Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Secondly, he's speaking to being truthful and honest. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The exhortation here is to have simplicity of speech. So you answer questions with authenticity so you be real. You avoid long explanations that could bear false witness. The idea is, is it possible to be truthful without being honest? Oh, yeah. It's easy to allow someone to think something by not saying anything, by explaining something in such a way where technically you didn't lie, but you gave the impression and let them walk away thinking something was that actually wasn't. And thirdly, he means don't make deals with God. I promise God if you'll get me out of this. God, I'll never do this again. Don't ever swear an oath. Instead, what James is saying is, be quiet, sit back, and let God work out his purpose. Patiently endure. Hold tight to your Savior. Now, why would we want to do these four things? Why would the early church hold tight to Jesus in the face of being fed the lions, in the face of being crucified, in the face of being killed with the sword? Why is James exhorting them to do these things? Well, this passage gives us a clue in several areas. Because sprinkled all throughout this passage, we see the answer to why we want to do this. And it's simply this. The king is coming. Jesus is coming to judge every single one of us. There's one king. It ain't Elvis. It ain't Michael Jackson. It ain't LeBron James. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's coming with a sword that will be out of his mouth. A tattoo on his leg that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's coming. He's coming. Verse 7. Listen to some of this language. Verse 7. Until the Lord's coming. Verse 8, because the Lord's coming is near. Verse 9, you will be judged. Verse 12, otherwise you will be condemned. In the New Testament, there are two main judgments that take place. And you could disagree with me on you know, the timing of these and what they're for. There's lots of different viewpoints on end times theology. And honestly, if I'm being honest with you, I don't think anybody knows exactly how everything's going to play out. But I think what we need to agree on is one day Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready to meet him. And if you got that right, I'm good with you. Amen, y'all. So you can be premillennial, postmillennial, all that stuff. And I'm not going to judge you too harshly, okay? But, but there are two main judgments. And the historical viewpoint on these judgments is as follows. The first is what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. You may have heard it referred to as, in the actual Greek, the Bema seat of Christ. And this is a judgment for people that have put their trust in Christ. It is a time of examination 
and reward for the things that we've done for Christ. It's not a time where God is going to punish sin because for believers, Jesus took that punishment upon himself when he died on the cross. This instead is a time to give a report and give an account for what you've done with your gifts, with your talents, and with everything that God has given you. So this is a serious time of reckoning for believers in Christ. Romans chapter 14 speaks to this in verses 10 through 12 when it says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? You remember about three weeks ago when we talked about judging others and playing God in their life? Well, this builds on that. You can see how beautifully the book of James comes together. It says, Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. The second judgment that takes place is a little bit scarier. The first one's very serious. And part of what James is saying is, hey, believers, tend the ground till the next rain comes. Get the weeds out of your garden. Make sure you're doing everything you can to be obedient to Christ because one day you're going to sit before the judgment seat of Christ and you're either going to be rewarded or not for what you've done. The second judgment, though, is what's called the great white throne of judgment. And the, the typical historical view is, is that this judgment will take place after Jesus' millennial reign. And it happens to settle all rebellion against God's righteousness. And anyone who did not know Christ as their Lord and Savior is going to be judged against God's perfect standard of holiness. Revelation chapter 20 speaks to this, and this is written in apocalyptic poetry and literature, but you're going to get the idea. So listen to what it says in Revelations 20. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a grave warning that James has given. Why do we go through books of the Bible verse by verse so we can land on scriptures and make sure we fully explain them? Because you don't hear a lot of preaching on the great white throne of judgment anymore, but it's very important. James is saying, if you don't know Christ, you need to get to know Christ so that you're not thrown in to the lake of fire at the great white throne of judgment. See, the Bible, for everything in our culture that tells you everything is on a spectrum, the Bible is very binary. And what James is speaking to is no different. There's light and there's darkness. There's holiness and there's sin. There's heaven and there's hell. There's glory and there is the lake of fire. 
Judgment's coming. You better make sure you're ready. I'm not trying to scare you. This is just where we landed on Mother's Day. But honestly, if this does put a little fear in you, that's okay. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. And if the fear causes you to come to Christ, then that's a wonderful thing. If we were in a plane and the engines failed in the plane and started to go down, shut up, Siri. Does anyone do that to any of y'all? I'm trying to make a serious point. Shut up. Stupid watch. Okay, get serious again. We were in that emotional moment. Y'all, I got you back. If we were in a plane and the engines failed on the plane and you knew you had to jump out of that plane to save your life, how many of y'all would grab a parachute? Just one person? Okay, yeah. Anybody par- grab a parachute if you got to jump out of a plane? You're 40,000 feet up? You're grabbing a parachute. So you can survive. What makes you grab that parachute? Fear. Fear makes you grab that parachute. James is saying, this world's going to come crashing down one day. The engines are going to fail. And every one of you is going to have to jump out of the plane. And you have a decision right now whether or not you're going to have a parachute named Jesus or not. Because if you don't, lake of fire. But if you do, you'll be saved. And you'll be written in the book of life. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. My daughter turned 15 in December. And when your kids turn 15, y'all that have little kids, you got this to look forward to. And y'all that have grown kids, you know what I'm talking about. At 15, something very scary happens. Does anybody know what that is? Learner's permit. Okay, y'all? She got her learner's permit. And she's a great driver. She's doing really, really good. Um, She's actually doing really, really good. But there have been some moments, y'all, where I needed a diaper. Y'all know what I'm saying? (laughs) The first time we pulled out onto a main road and got outside of our neighborhood, she accidentally, we were getting ready to pull out onto Miller, and we were coming to the stop sign, and instead of hitting the brake, she got it mixed up with the gas. Whew. I've got an old 2000 Toyota Tacoma truck, and uh, it doesn't have a camera on the back of it that sissies use, like that's on my Honda. Um, you have to look behind you. Remember those days? You have to use your mirrors. I've been trying to teach her as she backs up that what the mirror says is true. You need to make sure you leave plenty of space because objects, y'all know what it says, are closer than they appear. Say that with me. Objects are closer than they appear. And if you just use the mirror based off what you see, you're going to run into something. Well, what James is saying is objects are closer than they appear. You're looking in the mirror. You need to understand Jesus coming back is close. 2,000 years ago, the church thought Jesus was going to come back any day. We're 2,000 years closer to the coming of Christ now. Without getting on a soapbox of everything that's going on around the world, just know this. Jesus is coming back sooner than you realize. 
And you better be ready. If you don't know Christ, you need to put your trust in Him today. You need to repent of your sins. You need to confess your brokenness. And you need to follow Him. And I mean follow Him. What's the idea in the book of James? Real faith produces genuine works. When you meet Jesus, your life is changed. When you meet Jesus, you don't just start coming to church. Just because you're sitting in a church does not mean you are a Christian. What's the old saying? That's like a person standing in a garage and saying they're a car because of it. You've got to have a personal relationship with Him. And my fear for some of you is you play religion in Crossville, Tennessee, because it's the Bible Belt. And everybody goes to church. And you're here on Mother's Day because your mom dragged you here. But you ain't been to church in 30 years. Much less read your Bible. Prayed. Had anything to do with God. Your life's out of control. You're living in sin. You're doing crazy things. And you are on the verge of judgment. And you need to get right with God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. I thank you for every single person that is in here. God, what a strong message in the book of James. Number one, God, I pray for patient endurance for your people that are under the sound of my voice. There's people in here right now that don't know what to do in their life. They're confused. They're hurting. They're persecuted. People are talking junk about them. They got a diagnosis back. Their health is failing. God, I pray that they would patiently endure the rewards that they will receive for holding tight to their Savior no matter what they're facing. Strengthen their hearts today, God, to know that there have been those that have come before them that have been through worse than they've been through, and if they can make it, then we can make it. God, I also pray for those that are under the sound of my voice that are in danger of hell. They do not have a relationship with Jesus. The men in this room who think that because they said a sinner's prayer and got baptized at one point in their life, even though they clearly have no relationship with you, that they're good. And God, they are as lost as a goose. And they need to step up. They need to suck it up. And they need to do business with the one that created them and get saved. What a Mother's Day gift for a mother to know that their son or their daughter is going to one day be in heaven with them for eternity. I pray for a turning to you so that they don't face that judgment. We love you, Lord. You are awesome and you are mighty. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.